Welcome to Sunday School. Thank you for being here. Today we move on to the next of the seven C's of history. We spent eight lessons looking at creation, and now we take a look at the second C, corruption. Sin enters the world. Now this C, corruption, is one of the most important events in the history of the universe. Think about it. All the pain, the sorrow, the frustration of the world today, from the sniffly nose that keeps you from going to sleep at night to instances of mass genocide, they have their origin in the fall. When our progenitors, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, about 6,000 years ago, changed their mind about God and disobeyed him. And not only was the world forever altered, but so was mankind. Man became a doomed race, condemned to eternal punishment under the holy wrath of God, unless a savior came to transfer men out of the line of Adam and into a new holy race. This event, this history is critical for us to understand. But could you imagine if we didn't know about this? If God never told us about the fall? How hopelessly lost we would be. We would be constantly searching, moving from explanation to explanation for why the world is so corrupt. Why we have this terrible reality in our universe and in our human condition. But we'd never be able to find the answer. And when we think we'd found the answer, we would just be deluding ourselves. And in fact, we can observe this in the world today. They're trying to explain why the world is the way it is. And they're hopelessly lost. But God, in his compassion, has given us a trustworthy account of this important historical moment. So this is profoundly important for us to acknowledge and understand if we are to act wisely in the world today and respond rightly to the gospel. Now, as we go along our investigation of this next of the seven seas, I'll try to answer many of the common questions that come up about this event as recorded in the passages in, or the passage in Genesis. But I just want to warn you now, a lot of times the answers to these kinds of questions is going to be, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But that's okay, because Coming to that answer is actually a good opportunity for me to emphasize and re-emphasize an important principle of hermeneutics, of interpreting the Bible. And that is, if there's not enough evidence in the passage to make a strong conclusion about something, don't make a strong conclusion. Don't be dogmatic. You might speculate a little bit, but you have to hold your hypothesis very loosely because there's just not enough information. Now, there's a lot to say about the fall. And we're going to examine the fall and its effects over the next couple of lessons. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Here's what we want to accomplish today. We're just going to look at the first part of the fall. We're going to read and examine Genesis 3, 1 to 7. We're going to wait two weeks to talk about the aftermath. And as we talk about the fall, we're going to zero in on the strategy that the serpent uses against Eve. And we're going to see that that strategy is not too different from what we see today. And we'll also preview how the gospel actually shows up in the midst of this tragedy. And let's pray before we go on. The great God, thank you so much for telling us about this event. It's so important for us to know about. Help me to be able to explain clearly and help the people to be able to appreciate both the horror of what happened, but also the wonder of what you were accomplishing even through it. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's start our examination of the fall by reading the account of the fall, the first part of it, in Genesis 3, 1 to 7. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Remember the previous chapter? It concludes with the creation of man and woman and the creation of marriage and the description of that first marriage. But now we're in verse 1 of chapter 3. So follow along with me as I read down to verse 7. Now the serpent was, in, was more crafty than any beast of the field, which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Well, all, all right, as always, when we study a biblical passage, we want to start by just making simple observations. And even from these seven verses, there's a lot to observe and then a lot to interpret based on those observations. So let's make some observations. Notice how the serpent is described. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field. To be crafty means to be intelligently manipulative or clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful means. Notice whom the serpent approaches, not Adam, but the woman. Notice how the serpent's initial question compares to the command that God gives Adam in Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. If you just glance back at the previous chapter, God says to Adam, after he creates Adam, Genesis 2, 16-17, Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, any tree, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That's what he said in the previous chapter. But notice what the serpent says to the woman. Genesis 3, 1, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Very, very similar statements. Very important differences. Consider the tone of the serpent as he makes this question. And this comes out even more when we compare some of the Bible translations, major Bible translations of this verse. NASB, as we read, says, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. ESV says, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? NIV, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the New King James Version says, has God indeed said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? How could we describe the serpent's tone here to the woman? What would you say? Yes, Steve. Questioning. Yeah, he's certainly questioning. 
But uh, I think we could say more because questioning has the idea of asking a question, but what's his attitude even as he asked the question? Yeah, skeptical or surprised or incredulous. Really? Indeed? Actually, he said that? And this is important for us to notice. Notice how the woman's response compares to God's original command. She does state the distinction that God gave to Adam about the trees of the garden, but she curiously adds that they are not to touch it either. And that was not part of God's original prohibition. The woman also mentions that the penalty for eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of the good and evil of good and evil is death. But in reply, notice the three remarks the serpent makes. He says, you will surely not die. And notice how emphatic that is. You will surely not die. And then he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And for you will become like God, knowing good and evil. These are the three assertions. Now, are these three statements true about what will happen? You won't die when you eat it. Your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil like God. Are they true? Not in the way that Eve thinks that they will be true. It will actually be quite startling that many of these things will be true in a way. Adam and Eve do not die immediately when they eat. Their eyes are open after they eat. And they do gain a knowledge of good and evil. But do they become like God? Not at all. They actually become very unlike God because they become stained with evil. And God is only good. Moreover, even as they learn what evil is, they learn it experientially, which God never does. And yet, we can see a little bit here of why and how deceit is so effective. It always mixes the truth with falsehood. In some ways, what the serpent was saying was true, but not in the way that Eve expected. And notice the curious word in the serpent's response. A couple times he says, or one time he says, for. He would not surely die, for. Remember, for indicates a reason for what was just said. We're going to explore that reasoning a little bit more in just a moment. And when the serpent finishes speaking, Notice what three observations the woman makes about the fruit. She looks at the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She notices it's good for food, it's pretty to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. And many have connected these three observations with a certain New Testament verse describing man's sinful desires. And that's 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The woman chooses to eat the fruit. But where is Adam in all of this? That question's a little hard to answer. We certainly don't see him involved at all until the woman actually eats the fruit. At that point, he is said to be with her because she gives him some to eat. And he does. Adam appears to take the fruit from her without a word. But glance down to chapter 3, verse 17. Notice this is where God is actually rebuking and offering curses. Notice specifically for what God rebukes Adam. He says, for listening to the voice of your wife. 
Now, we didn't hear any dialogue between Adam and Eve, between the man and the woman, but apparently there was some conversation that was just not recorded. Now, when their eyes are opened, observe what men and women, men and women immediately notice, that they are naked. And they respond to this realization by making loin coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. With these observations, let's move to the interpretation step. Skeptics might mock this passage for its description of a talking snake, but who is the serpent really? This is Satan. This is the devil. But how do we know that? It's not mentioned here. Okay, the clearest place we can go to is the book of Revelation. Without the book of Revelation, though, certainly as the Bible unfolds, we see that Satan, the devil, is identified as the opponent of mankind. And he is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. First Chronicles, the book of Job, the book of Zechariah. But Revelation gives us the clearest identification. Revelation 12.9, describing uh, various things, but it mentions, Revelation 12.9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So identify specifically. That serpent of old, that's the dragon. That's the devil. That's Satan. This is not just a snake. This is the evil one, the devil, speaking through the serpent. Now, where did Satan come from? And why is he seeking to deceive Eve? Uh... I don't have this as a separate question, so hang on to that just a second. Uh, recall that Satan is a fallen angel. Angels were created sometime during the creation week, probably day one or day three. We've talked about that in previous lessons. Satan was a glorious angel that rebelled against God and enlisted other angels in his rebellion. Now, I know you've heard, many of you have heard that before, but again, where's the biblical support for this notion? Well, again, we can actually go to the same place in Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, where it gives us more description about what the devil has done in the past. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, this is just a, about five verses or so earlier than the one I just quoted. Revelation 12, verses 3 to 4 says this. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon, <clears throat> excuse me, stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Now that passage is identifying things that have already taken place in history. In the context, as we've already seen, the dragon is identified as Satan. And through these metaphors, the stars are to be interpreted as heavenly followers, fellow angels who rebelled with Satan and fell with him. We call those fallen angels demons today. The other passages people often point to to explain Satan's background are Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In those passages, God is rebuking earthly, self-absorbed rulers. But many interpreters, seeing the descriptions given in those passages, see those descriptions as being too exalted, as simply describing earthly rulers. They'll talk about someone being a morning star or ascending to heaven or wanting to be like God. 
And so some interpreters assert these things must be talking about Satan rather than earthly rulers. But certainly we see that Satan was a glorious angelic being and he rebelled against God. When did he do this though? When did this satanic rebellion happen? We're not told specifically in the Bible. It's likely shortly before the account here in Genesis 3. Now, why would I say that? Well, since God pronounced all of creation to be very good at the end of day six, it's likely the rebellion had not taken place before that. And the seventh day was blessed as a holy day of rest before God. So the angelic rebellion probably didn't take place then either. Though certainly not during the creation week, probably sometime after the seventh day. Whenever this took place, the rebellious Satan was cast down to earth, full of rage against God, and all that is good. And he immediately set out to deceive and murder mankind. Satan have no reason to waste any time as he hates God and as he hates God's plans. So here's the second question on my PowerPoint. When does this encounter with Eve and Satan take place? When does the fall happen? Well, once again, we're not told specifically. But due to two clues of the Bible, we can say that it was likely very soon after the close of the creation week. What are the two clues? Well, first, Adam and Eve had not conceived yet, even though God had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. You'd think with a perfect creation, that conception wouldn't take very long, though it's possible that the mechanisms worked a little bit differently before the fall. But a second clue is the pair had apparently not taken hold yet of the tree of life or its fruit, because we see later on in chapter three, one of the reasons they're banished from the garden is God says, lest they take hold of the tree of life. So apparently they hadn't done that, and you think they would if they had been there for some time. Therefore, from these two clues, it's unlikely that much time at all had gone by since the end of creation. This is probably just a few days or a few weeks after the first Sabbath. It's kind of sad when you think about it. Didn't live, mankind didn't live in his innocent, perfect existence for very long. I noted that the serpent approached Eve and not Adam. Now, I keep, uh, sometimes I'm saying Eve, though technically that's not her name until after these things take place. We see why she's called Eve later on. But you know who I'm talking about, Eve, the woman. Why does Satan approach Eve and not Adam? This is another hard to answer question, but let me mention an important verse and then summarize a few options in trying to answer this question. The verse is 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 14. 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14 says this in comment on the fall. This is Paul speaking. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Now that verse tells us some things, but we still need to think through it. Why did Satan go after the woman? Well, one answer that has been posited many times historically is that Satan went after Eve because she, as a woman, was just spiritually weaker. She was more vulnerable. Women are just inherently spiritually weaker. However, while the New Testament does emphasize the special care that husbands ought to have for their wives, like one cares for a fragile vessel, which doesn't necessarily say anything about woman, but just the way that the man is to care for her. 
Now, the husband is to care for his wife. Nevertheless, the New Testament knows nothing of essential spiritual superiority or inferiority in Christ. Now, men and women clearly have different roles in the family and church, which is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 2. They are spiritually equal in Christ, which is what Galatians 3 emphasizes. So another answer that people might give as to why Satan went after the woman was that while not spiritually weaker than Adam, Eve was mentally different in a way that made her more vulnerable to Satan's temptation. That is to say, for example, as psychologists and anecdotal evidence suggest, women are just made differently. They're generally more relational, emotional, more empathetic than men. And these differences are not imperfections. They are actually part of God's design for the complementarity of man and woman. But Satan sought to use the woman's natural strength against her and against Adam by getting her to listen to him, Satan, and then using her strength as a communicator to ensnare her beloved. A third answer would be for why Satan went after Eve is that Eve's Vulnerability didn't have to do with her being a woman, but with her receiving knowledge secondhand. Now, this is based on some inference. Because remember, when we hear the command of God regarding the tree of knowledge in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, it is there given to Adam only. It's possible that God never gave the command directly to Eve, but relied on Adam to lead his wife as her head, when it came to obeying this command. This would explain, potentially, why Eve does not quote God's words exactly when questioned by the serpent. She may have just reported what Adam told her. Satan then, if this is the case, saw that he could more easily plant doubt in the one who did not hear directly from God. Furthermore, his temptation would tempt Eve to pride. She could get her own superior source of knowledge and even instruct her husband, not simply submit to his instruction. Maybe that's why Satan went after her. However, it is possible that Eve did hear the command from God himself, and it's just not recorded in Genesis. Obviously, not everything that happened is recorded in Genesis. I'm sure there might be other answers we might offer, and there are reasons to hesitate even with these answers. But one thing is clear, and it assuredly was part of Satan's scheme, for going after women. Satan desired to contradict the creation and marriage order that God had designed. This is why we have passages in the New Testament that reassert God's originally created roles for man and woman in marriage. Satan, in his viciousness toward God and all that's good, he wanted to upend God's design, saying to himself something like this, the husband is supposed to be the head, leading and serving his wife. I'll make him the follower who lets himself and his wife be swept away by a terrible decision. The wife is supposed to be the helper who submits. I'll make her the leader in sin. Instead of helping her husband, I'll cause her to do him the greatest injury imaginable. Satan loves to corrupt and destroy, to take everything good about God and about what he has made and twist it. And shortly, that had much to do with why he went after the woman. Let's see if we can break down now, more specifically, Satan's means of deception. What was his strategy? Notice again, back in verse 1, the serpent first asks Eve, 
Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The Hebrew word here for any literally means the whole and can be translated any, every, or all. This is also the word used by God in Genesis 2.16, when he says, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, based on this word, we could take the meaning of the serpent's question in two different ways. He could be asking, did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees of the garden at all? That is a total prohibition. You can't have any single one of them. Well, what would be the answer to that question? Uh, no, clearly. This would not be a very unsubtle, or this would not be a very subtle contradiction of what God said. But there is another way that we can understand Satan's question. And I think this is what he was really communicating. The other way to understand his question would be to say, or would be to, that would be the following. Did God really say you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? That is to say, a nuanced prohibition. Are you not allowed to have every tree that you want? And what's the answer to that question? The answer is yes, actually. They're not allowed to have every tree that they want. Even though Genesis 2.16 does say, you may eat freely of any tree you want. It's then followed by an exception in verse 17, except from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. If you take out that explanation of verse 17 in chapter 2, as Satan does, then the answer to Satan's question to Eve is technically, yes, we were told we shall not eat from every tree. We can't just go up to any old tree in the garden and just eat its fruit. We have to make a distinction. Now, what's so subtle about this is that Satan's question doesn't mention or emphasize God's abundance at all. Because that's what we see in Genesis 2, right? From any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. This is abundant provision. This is generosity from God. That's not what Satan draws attention to. Instead, what is Satan's, what does Satan's question focus on? The restriction, not the abundance. Let's talk about the restriction. And that is subtle. I believe this is a sense of Satan's question. Satan seeks to eschew Eve's mind from all of God's generous provisions and instead focus on the restriction. And we noted earlier that the serpent's tone is one of surprise, incredulity, confusion. Now, what does this surprise from the serpent communicate about God's choice to restrict Adam and Eve in their choice of fruit? It suggests that this doesn't make any sense. This is unexpected. God really said you can't eat from every tree? That's strange. Why would God say that? Why would he restrict you like that? Doesn't make sense to me. Are you sure you heard him right, Eve? Ever so subtly, Satan wants to plant an idea into Eve's mind. Maybe God's commands aren't good. Maybe his restrictions are holding you back from something that's actually really good for you, something really enjoyable. Maybe you can't trust God to have your good in mind. Maybe you can't trust God's law. God's commands to have your good in mind. In response, Eve repeats God's command to the serpent with the strange addition, or touch it. It may not eat it 
or touch it. Now, why does she add this extra part? Some have said this is an extra warning she heard from Adam, or that this perhaps was Eve giving in already to Satan's suggestions that God is not really good. Yeah, he won't even let us touch it. But there's not enough evidence to say for sure. Certainly something seems off. The original listeners should have noticed that this is a different than what God actually said. Eve does reaffirm God's provision. She does also mention God's warning about death. It's this mention of death to which Satan seeks to plant a second kind of doubt. He has suggested that God is too restrictive, that his laws are not good. God is not completely trustworthy. But his second mode of deception is to plant doubt about God's holiness, God's judgment. Satan flatly contradicts God's statement that there are consequences for sin. Satan says, the serpent says, you shall not surely die. Even though God said the exact same thing and opposite, you shall surely die in Genesis 2.17. God says you'll definitely not die, but I'm here, the serpent tells you, the serpent says, to tell you that you definitely will not die. Not only is God restricting you needlessly, not only is he holding you back from the things that might really benefit you or bring you joy, but he's lying to you about the consequences of going after those things. You don't have to worry. You can go after whatever you want without fear. God won't judge you. God won't destroy you. Really, the serpent is telling Eve that God is just bluffing. He's not as holy as you think he is. He, or as, you, as you've heard he is, he's just trying to scare you. He won't really punish you. But this provokes a natural question. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God lie about judgment? Why would he pretend that there are consequences for going after sin when there really aren't? And this is exactly where Satan goes next. I'll tell you why God pretends judgment, Satan says. Why he's just trying to scare you. And this is where we come back to the word for that we noted earlier. What is the reason that the serpent provides for why God lies about death? Ultimately, we can say it is because, this is Satan's argument, because God is jealous and selfish. He doesn't want you to be like him. Satan says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the final element of Satan's scheme. First, plant doubt about the goodness of God toward Eve in his laws. Then plant doubt about God's judgment against sin. And now plant doubt about the core worthiness of God. God doesn't want you to be like him. He has all the glory. He has all the pleasure. He has all the wisdom. But he doesn't want to share any of it with you. That's why he tries to scare you by talking about death. God does whatever he wants. But he doesn't want to let you do whatever you want. Really, God is petty and selfish. He's full of envy. He actually gets happiness out of preventing other people from having happiness. To borrow a phrase from John MacArthur, typifying Satan's argument, God is the cosmic killjoy. This fruit can make you as wise and knowledgeable as God. Why would he want to deny you that? It's because he's such a miser. God is really a tyrant. Serpent says all this, all this, as if he, Satan, really has Eve's ultimate good in mind. Well, clearly God doesn't. 
all this, of course, is vicious blasphemy against God. But you know what the worst part of it is? It takes a true aspect of God's character and mutilates it so that God appears as a villain. I mean, think about it. Is God jealous? He is, but not in the way that Satan's characterizing him. God is indeed jealous that no one be like him or take from him the glory he rightly deserves. But this is not because God is evil or cruel. It is because God is good. And we know this from other scriptures. God is too good to let us be satisfied with anything less than the best, which is his full glory. God demands exclusive worship, but this is a generous demand because only God is soul satisfying. He freely and fully gives himself to all who come to him. He is no miser. You could say that God's jealousy or even God's selfishness is actually one of his most wonderful and beautiful qualities. Because what that means is that God will always do the greatest good to all his creatures. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, God cannot deny himself. He will never deny his own worthiness to be sought after, worshipped, and enjoyed. In that sense, God is jealous. How wicked of Satan to take the very source of God's goodness and turn it into what looks like the greatest source of evil. But this is hardly surprising from the one who experienced the holy jealousy of God firsthand. Satan, the rebel angel, was thrown out of heaven for seeking to glorify himself instead of the one who deserved it, the triune God. So I believe this is Satan's strategy. Get Eve to doubt the goodness of God and his law. Get Eve to doubt the holiness of God and his judgment. And then get her to doubt the worthiness of God and his jealousy. Now, does this sound familiar? Think about application with me for a second. Isn't this the same fundamental strategy that Satan uses with people, even today? Even us? I mean, we can hear these same words being spoken to our hearts and our minds. Does God really say you can't have that idol you crave? God says you can't give that person who insulted you what he deserves. God says you can't have all your sexual fantasies. You're merely confined to a marriage bed or worse, singleness. How restrictive. He says you can't pity yourself or be angry for not having all the material goods you want and deserve. Huh. That's strange for a God claiming to be good. You know what? Go for the idol anyway, Satan says. God's not going to punish you for it. That whole judgment thing is an illusion. No one will find out your sin. Why would God punish you for giving yourself what you deserve? Don't worry about the consequences. After all, you can always repent later. In fact, you know why God wants to scare you from going after what you deserve? It's because he's jealous of all those who are free. Really, God's kind of messed up inside. He's a control freak. He doesn't seek your good. I seek your good. I want you to be free. And I will give you everything you want if you just follow after me, Satan says. So think for a moment. Have you encountered those temptations? If you live in the world, I know you have. So do you buy into Satan's lies? 
like Eve did. You ask yourself, do I believe these lies? Do I believe these seductive deceits? Let us not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. He is crafty, like the serpent. But he uses the same tactics across the millennia. There's nothing new under the sun, not even Satan's schemes. He'll repackage them, but it's the same deceits again and again. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's schemes, but let us instead brandish the full panoply of God, as Ephesians 6 says, shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, helmet of salvation. We see in this chapter in Genesis 3 that the first woman does buy into the deception of Satan. She does change her mind about God. And she decides she doesn't need God or his wisdom after all. She can decide for herself what is wise and good, thank you very much. She decides she will live and think autonomously from God. So now with a broken mind, she steadies the tree's fruit and she comes to the opposite conclusions from what God had previously instructed. God said the food is lethal. Eve concludes it's good and good for food and looks beautiful. God said the wise way is not to eat of that tree's fruit. Eve concludes the tree is the true way to wisdom. Eve's decision to eat the fruit then is just outward evidence of her new inward condition. Now a question you might have, what kind of fruit is the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We don't know. Probably it's not any of the fruits that we have today. But don't misunderstand, the fruit itself did not magically or supernaturally impart a cursed and sinful nature. Eating the fruit was simply emblematic of a spiritual heart transformation. Truly, you could say that Eve's fall took place before Eve even tasted the fruit. Her heart had already changed. The actual act, however, of eating the fruit provided clear evidence of her changed heart, of her corruption. It's as if the act of sin and the heart corruption were occurring at the same time. So we don't know what the fruit was. It probably was not an apple, even though that's the way it's popularly depicted. But it's emblematic of what was going on in the change of heart in man and woman. Speaking of man, what about Adam? How does he fall? He was with her when she ate. But the New Testament also says, as you might remember me quoting earlier, Adam was not deceived by the snake. So then, why does he also then eat? He wasn't deceived. Again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. Though Eve surely plays a role because God rebukes Adam for listening to his wife. Eve may have told Adam what she learned from the serpent or what she learned from studying the fruit. She may have told him how delicious the fruit was. She may have remarked about, hey, I'm still alive. There's no judgment from God after all. Assuredly, Eve entreated her husband to join her. Perhaps Adam idolized Eve over God. Perhaps he was persuaded by the serpent's arguments when they came from the mouth of the woman he loved. For whatever reason, and there was no justification, he too eats of the fruit. And it's only after they both eat that their eyes are open to what they had done. 
And isn't this always the way of sin? Again, we can see direct parallels to our own experience. During the moment of anger, coveting, or lust, we don't, we don't often hear truth or feel the pangs of guilt. But only a short time later, we see and know the full darkness of what we have done. Again, this is why we must take up the armor of God so that we do not viciously wound ourselves and subject ourselves to the chastening and judgment of God. Why do the pair suddenly feel naked? After all, they've been naked the whole time. Well, clearly this has something to do with the effect of sin, the shame of sin. We noted previously throughout the Bible that nakedness is associated with the shame of sin. It's not that nakedness itself is sinful or shameful. Adam and Eve felt no shame in being naked before the fall, but post-fall. Nakedness is a symbol for the desolation of sin. And it's not just symbolic, it's also practical. With their minds corrupted, Adam and Eve are suddenly able to imagine all sorts of sin. And each knows that the other, as well as any children that they might have, are capable of all kinds of perversions. They suddenly realize, I'm not safe in this world with other sinners. Each person, therefore, feels vulnerable. And so they make loin coverings for themselves. They can't help it. They know how sinful other people are by considering their own sinfulness. And again, aren't these things still true for our world today? The fact that we wear clothes is a testimony to the fall. It's true. Clothes also serve additional practical functions for us today, keep us warm and such. And there are groups that have worked to overcome the stigma, the innate stigma of nakedness. But we too feel the vulnerable wickedness of ourselves and our fellow humans. And this is a testimony of the truthfulness of this account, that we have all rebelled against our creator God. But this idea of covering is actually going to give us a picture of the gospel. And we can only explore this in preview today. Now, in two weeks' time, we'll talk more specifically about the consequences of the fall and more fully how the gospel is put on display in this chapter. But let's preview that briefly just now. It's amazing, but right as man commits the greatest rebellion and atrocity against God, God responds immediately with the unfathomable kindness of the gospel. Just glance down a little bit to what comes after our first seven verses. Verses eight and nine. Adam and Eve hide from God. But what does God do? He goes after them. He goes looking for them. He calls after them. What does that show us? No sinner seeks God. We see this throughout the Bible. It was true in the beginning. But what does God and mercy do? He seeks them. Sinners don't seek God, but God seeks sinners. Moreover, Genesis 3.15, and we'll have much to say about this when we come back to it. God makes a promise to the serpent. He says, a descendant of the woman will come one day to defeat you and deliver man from the effects of Satan's deceit. And this is moments after man's great rebellion against God. But what is God already doing? He's giving man the good news of hope and salvation. He promises a saving seed. 
And then finally, look at Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.21 says, Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God judged the self-made fig leaves of the man and woman to be inadequate covering for them. They needed something better. And God clothed them with animal skins. But what does this act seem to imply happened? That an animal was killed for them. An, in, an innocent animal that they might be covered. Here also we see the gospel in a preview form. The shame and corruption of man's sin needs covering, but man cannot cover himself. God must do it. But even the covering that God provides is not without a blameless sacrifice. You know, the Old Testament sacrificial system will also picture this, but the fulfillment of this picture will be the seed of the woman to come. Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we're only outlining this previewed gospel, but behold the kindness of God in the midst of overwhelming judgment, sin, and despair. God gives hope. And why? Because it is his nature as the holy but merciful saving God. He is the only Savior. And the same is true today. The gospel hope that is held out to this first sinning pair is held out throughout the scriptures and is still being held out to each person, even to each one of us, that we might be saved from the eternal penalty of sin. More will be explained about this as we go through the scriptures, but it's true from the beginning as it is true today. By repentance from your sin and faith in God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. As the New Testament even says, you will not die. Or though you die, you will live again. Because the one who is the resurrection and the life becomes your Savior. Now, some may ask, if God is so good and holy and so powerful, why did he allow the fall? Couldn't we just have avoided this whole tragedy? If you're so good, God, why'd you let this happen? Did you want this to happen? You hate sin, why'd you let it happen? Actually, the answer to this question may surprise you. It's actually because God is so good, so holy and all powerful that he ordained the fall. Now that is an answer that will take much longer to explain and to give you all the, all the particulars of that. But make no mistake, the fall was no surprise to God. In fact, it was part of his sovereign plan to enjoy his ultimate glory and accomplish ultimate good for his own. Acts 2.23 says, and 1 Peter 1.20 verses 21 says, that Christ was foreknown as the saving sacrifice for sin before the foundation of the world. So this is no plan B. Oh man, they messed up. What are we going to do now? No, this was always part of God's sovereign plan. Revelation 13.8 further reveals that we too, as believers, were elected in the slain lamb of God before the world was created. So though God does hate sin and he is wholly good, 
The fall was always part of God's plan. He ordained it. How can this be? How can a good God do that? Well, consider Paul's explanation in Romans 9, verses 22 to 23. I'll paraphrase. We often sing or talk about the depths of the wonders of God creating us, saving us, in spite of our ugly sin and rebellion. Yet, without the fall of Adam, without the corruption of sin, and without the later salvation work of Christ, delivering us from death and sin and hell, how little would we know about the true depths of the glory of God? How little will we know about his power to save, his unfailing love, his undeserved grace? This is why Augustine, famed fourth century church father, he coined a strange yet accurate term for speaking of the fall. The term is Felix culpa, which means happy fall or lucky fall. This is not to say that everything that resulted from the fall is happy or without pain. Indeed, the eternal punishment that comes upon vessels of wrath because of the fall is something overwhelming that we are not able to fully comprehend in this life. Nevertheless, the Bible reveals that the fall of Adam was ultimately good for all of those in Christ Jesus. That is, those called according to God's purpose, as Romans 8.28 says, because for those, for us, as recipients of God's undeserved and abundant kindness, we get to experience the full glory of God on, magni on magnificent display in Christ, our Savior, forever. Now, as you probably notice, we're broaching the question of the problem of evil, and there's much more we could say about that. But the ultimate answer is that God is able to, without being responsible for sin, Use sin, even the fall of man, to accomplish an ultimate good that is justified. Wow. So that's a lot. And we've only touched the first seven verses of the fall account. What are some questions that you have based on today's lesson or this text? Yes, Steve. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, that's a good question, Steve. So, referring to that New Testament passage that talks about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. How could those things have taken place before Eve had actually fallen or had taken the fruit? And this is something that maybe does become a little bit of a, of a, a slog, a long debate. When did the fall actually take place? Did it take place when she ate the fruit? Did it take place before she ate the fruit? I think, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the lesson, I think it actually took place before, and the eating of the fruit was just emblematic of that. Because when she's making these judgments about the fruit and its desirability to her and how it's going to make her wise, she's already not thinking according to God's, uh, according to God's way. And I don't think there's something magical in the fruit that brings this new, 
this new corruption. I think it's the change of heart where she decided to not believe God and she decided to believe the serpent. So again, I think the fruit is just emblematic of the change that took place shortly before that. So why can we say the fall took place with the eating of the fruit? Because it's so close. It's kind of like, um, well, you know, the, the Bible has a lot of emphasis on deeds. God does look at the heart, but we are judged according to our deeds. And I think the reason for that is that deeds cannot be argued. Now, God is the omniscient God. He can always say, I know it's in your heart, so don't, don't give me your deeds. But again and again, there's a return to deeds in the Bible saying, this is proof. This is proof of what you really are. In fact, I'm just thinking now of Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. God, at the very end of that, he says, now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your only son. What? God, didn't you know that already? You can look into his heart. Well, he did. But he wanted that to be displayed to all by a clear deed of faith. I think that's the same thing that we have happening here in the fall. Now, I'm sure not every Christian theologian would agree with that. But at least you can see my way of thinking on this. But that's a good question. Other questions? Yes, uh, Josiah. That's a good question. Let me see if I can restate it in brief. So was there something about the, the nature of man as created that when presented with the option of, of sin, when presented with the option of evil versus good, that they will always choose evil? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I would say that. It is interesting to consider what, what was their knowledge of evil before. Certainly, they didn't have to know what evil was experientially to know what evil was. And they were able to obey. And yet, we are aware at the same time that the fall was ordained by God. And for any of us to say, oh, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. That's just not true. We all would have done the same thing. I don't know if I go so far as to say is that when presented with the option of evil, they'll always choose that. I'm, I'm also thinking, just thinking on the fly here, when we think about why some angels fell and some did not, you'd think the angels were presented with basically the same predicament, obey God or not obey God. And some chose to not obey and they fell. Why didn't the others fall? If it were something due to the angelic nature, then all of them should have fallen, but some didn't. And I think the way to answer that question is to say that God elected, God sovereignly ordained that some would not fall. He protected them. So I'm not sure if I can explore or able to or prepare to explore the facets of angelic nature, human nature that would cause them to fall or not fall. That's a lot of things that we're just not really sure about. But it is, a, it is an interesting question. Other questions? You guys give me some nice easy ones. No, just kidding. <laughs> Any other questions?
Right, well, we've just broached the subject of the fall. We've talked about the first seven verses and we have not really talked about the consequences of the fall. We've talked about them a little bit, but we're gonna see that next time when we come back to this passage, we're gonna talk about the curses that come about as a result. And we'll also talk more at length of how the gospel is put on display here. Now, next time though, we're not returning to this passage specifically, next time is a review day. As you know, with our review days in the adult Sunday school class, we do different things. Sometimes we do review. Sometimes we explore a topic more in depth. Sometimes we do a Q&A. Sometimes we watch a video and discuss it. Uh, I'm working through some different options of what we're going to do next week. It has some things that we can, uh, we can explore more specifically. But I'd also like to take the opportunity to answer questions that you have. Do some more Q&A, not just about the fall or even creation, but really anything related to the Bible. I think it's useful for us to take time to think about the questions that are on your mind. And if you have a question that's possibly in other people's minds, both about the Bible or about theology or about application to the Christian life, please send me your questions via email. Send them to me this week by Friday. And that way I can prepare an answer and we can have it featured as part of our Sunday school lesson for next week. So again, if you have a question, please send me a question based on whatever we've talked about or something that's just on your mind related to the Bible and the Christian life. I, if I can, I'd like to be able to answer that question and edify the whole body as they also consider the question. If you don't send me any questions, that's fine too. We'll have, we'll have plenty of other things to talk about, but I'd love to receive your questions in time for next week review. Or uh, as always, if you have a question about this lesson, you can send me that too. And I can answer you via email or we can talk about it next week in the Sunday school lesson, but that's all for today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord God, there are so many, so many things, God, that are just so hard to think about when it comes to the fall. There's the, the horror of what happened. There's the wonder of your grace, even in the midst of it all. How you did not destroy man immediately, but instead you gave him a word of hope and you began to outline that gospel that saves. That's because you are a kind, saving God. Yet God, we also know that when we bring in your sovereignty over all of this and the nature of man and man's responsibility, this does begin to look, get a little hard to comprehend. But we know what your word says, that we are always responsible for sin. None of the blame goes to you. And yet you are in total control. You are in total control even of the fall. And we accept those things, accept those things by faith, God. We can't, we can't fully unravel those. But God, I think of what we are to do today. This is not mere information for us. This is meant to change us. This is to cause people to run to you in mercy because you are the only saving God. This is to cause people to think about how they too follow the same sorts of deceptions as the serpent gave the woman and man in the beginning. Lord, I pray that we would not be deceived the same way, that we would not be ignorant of Satan's schemes, that we would arm ourselves by faith with your armor, with your equipment, so we can stand against the devil in the evil day, and we can reap the rewards of obedience, that we can enjoy you just as we were meant to from the beginning. Lord, everything you do is wondrous. I pray that that would be more on the minds of the, of the people today as they think about even in the worst calamity, you are working ultimate good. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all.